Welcome to My on Mondays, an explorative approach to the possessive my through narratives, art, and sound. Each Monday brings a new creation and unique perspective. My on Mondays is brought to you by Ming Studios, a contemporary art space and international artist residency program dedicated to the exhibition, experience, and exploration of arts and culture. Along with exhibiting artists from around the world, Ming also serves the community by hosting innovative programs including performances, workshops, screenings, readings, artist talks, and other cultural activities. For more information or if you'd like to participate in My on Mondays, you can visit our website at mingstudios.org. Hello and welcome to My on Mondays. Today we have part four of our theme, My Mother, My Father, Myself, with another beloved and frequent contributor to Ming Studios programming. Jodine Revere is a longtime Boise actor and performer. She's worked with Boise Contemporary Theater, Migration Theory, Alley Rep, and Homegrown Theater. She does commercials, voiceovers, radio spots, and a variety of independent films. Her first reading at Ming in 2019 became the springboard for her solo show, The Persistent Guest, which has gone on to have its world premiere at BCT in 2022, followed by a stripped-down touring version which was performed at The Spot in Ketchum and United Solo Fest in New York City in 2023. She'll be taking the show back out into the world throughout 2024, performing at fringe festivals and small black box theaters around the country. She's been a contributor of original work for Campfire Stories, The Bloom Series, and a featured storyteller twice for Story Story Night. She most recently did two nights of holiday readings at the Mode in December. This is her third offering for My on Mondays, titled 150,000 Shades of White. 150,000 Shades of White when I was six, my family purchased a vintage cabin in an area called Kearney Lakes. This was a total misnomer, as there were no Carnies that I was aware of, and the lakes were more largish, smallish, brackish ponds. Spongy, pine-needled fire roads spoke outward from them, connecting to dozens of pristine 1950s parent trap cabins. At the entrance to the property was a metal cattle guard gate with a Jacob Marley chain and padlock situation that guarded the cabins and the ponds from outsiders and perhaps rogue carnies. All cabin owners had their own tiny silver key that afforded them access to this restful vacation destination. In theory, there was a caretaker who lived in the cabin where the gated entrance was, but he was rarely seen and became sort of a spooky Boo Radley idea of a caretaker. Our tobacco brown cabin had white shutters with hand-painted sunflowers and set up on a small rise above the larger of the two largish, smallish ponds. There was a spacious wooden deck and steep rickety stairs that went down to a small private dock. A tiny yellow sailboat with a sunflower that matched our shutters on the sail was tied there. It was maybe seven feet long, and my father taught me to sail in it. This is the only recollection I have of him teaching me to do something, as most of my learning happened when he was not around, which was almost always. When I was proficient enough to sail by myself, I proudly navigated my vessel on the wee pond when those strong mountain breezes would sigh through the pines. 
the crackle of the water against the hull, the taut pull in the sail, the thrill of tacking to the opposite shore and back again, a defining moment in feeling capable and independent as a child, and simultaneously bound and close to a man I rarely saw. We went to the cabin a great deal between April and October, hosting friends and family. Barbecues on the deck, pinecone fights on the winding trails, swimming in the largish, smallish, silty ponds, delighting in the millions of tadpoles in the spring and terrified of the equal number of frogs that replace them in the summer. In the winter, the roads were not plowed, water turned off, so no one went up after October. But we had snowmobiles. I'm not entirely certain how many times we actually went to the cabin in the winter or how long we stayed, but in my mind, it's one highly concentrated ideal moment in time. We packed the burnt orange faux wood paneled Jeep Cherokee full of gallons of water and canned food, two big dogs and their stinky, humid breath, two kids, two parents, and drove up to the Pines Tavern outside of Boise, hauling a trailer with two snowmobiles, one adult-sized Arctic cat and one child-sized kitty cat an actual gasoline-powered vehicle that blew doors at almost 12 miles an hour full throttle, and it was mine. We would move provisions from the car to the utility sled my dad pulled behind his snowmobile. A Tetris situation of supplies, bungee cords, and tarps securing all we would need for the next few days of isolation. Finally, gathering at a long table in front of the fireplace and the frigid bar slash restaurant, we would have a lunch of bratwurst and potato salad on paper plates, making sure not to drink too much soda before we climbed into our full-body Michelin Man snowsuits that made it impossible to pee in the great outdoors without getting completely naked. After using functional indoor plumbing for the last time, Stocking up on beef jerky, we would ask the proprietors to please send a rescue team if we didn't reappear in four days, thereby avoiding a Donner Party scenario. Firing up the engines and driving straight into the heart of winter. Years later, when I would read Generation X, Douglas Coupland would reference the smell of gasoline as being the smell of the future. For me, it only ever causes this moment in my past to float shimmering and mirage-like up to the surface of my mind, the tasty tang of engine fumes in the frozen air. It was probably only 20 minutes to the cabin from the Pines Tavern, but we would stop halfway, and my mom and I would trade places. Once the engine sputtered and cut out, a roar of silence would fill the air, the deep snow swaddling and softening all sound, the creak of the pines, the almost audible sound of bone-white snowflakes accumulating. You understood how there really could be 150,000 shades of white. Heading off again, my mom would ride my tiny snowmobile, and I would stand on the back of the sled attached to Dad's, pretending that I was an Iditarod musher, singing the happy wanderer at the top of my lungs, the winter air swallowing my words. Our dogs, a ghost-white Samoyed and a collie, cut through the baby powder snowdrifts like dolphins alongside of us. Arriving at the metal cattle guard gate, opening it with a tiny silver key and locking it behind us, our Narnia time out of time would begin. The uninhabited cabin, musty, the cold inside, melancholic, unloading the sled, Plugging in the fleet of space heaters, Dad would then start a fire in the big stone fireplace. 
my brother and I shedding the bulky snowsuits and carefully creeping up ladders in our thermal long johns to our respective open lofts that flanked either side of the vaulted, ceilinged open living area. These loft areas like indoor treehouse platforms. I longed for jungle vines like the Swiss Family Robinson to get from side to side. Our jobs were to check the mouse traps, sweep away cobwebs, and pull fresh bedding from the cedar chests. The iron wood stove in the kitchen was stoked and lit. Water for powdered Swiss Miss hot chocolate was set to boil, and canned chili in green enamel pans were soon bubbling. A salt and pepper checkered child's record player rested on a low table. A dozen Disney storybook albums. One 500-piece jigsaw puzzle of an A-frame cabin buried in snow. At least 250 of those puzzle pieces were some shade of white, and half a dozen board games were our only entertainment. The roll of the dice, the slap of cards for Monopoly, Masterpiece, Life, and Clue, the comforting voice of Rex Allen on the scratchy LP, unspooling the thrilling saga of Teo the Siamese Cat, Bodger the Bull Terrier, and Lua the Labrador from The Incredible Journey. No television, no phone. Dad, who was always gone, or home with the telephone receiver attached to his ear, was our captive. He could not go away or talk to other people or work. He had to be with us. He had to inhabit this one-bedroom snow globe with us. Laying in my tiny, dormered loft, under my red and blue gingham quilt upstairs in the cabin, in the deep, silent, bone-white winter, Hearing the crackle of the fire and the hushed tones of my parents' voices rising upward, I was the happiest I'd ever been. We were all together, like a real family. A little house on the prairie kind of family. The best kind. I drifted off to sleep praying that it would always be just like this. I imagined for a long time that this was the reality of who we were as a family. If only he was home all of the time. When he began to travel less and was home for far longer stretches of time, I saw how wrong I was. Although initially novel and thrilling, the discomfort my father felt in our presence for any sustained period of time without myriads of distractions at his disposal was palpable. An anxiety and sadness began to settle over me, my mom, my brother. In theory, he loved the idea of a family. It was the reality of one that was problematic. We spent so much time, just the three of us, Dad always gone, that we had a particular rhythm, an understanding of how things worked, that he had no clue about. My father became the third child when he was home. My mother unwittingly became the outlier. When Dad was home, it became us against her. But once the initial shine of Dad's presence wore off, allegiances shifted again. Itching to be on the road in his exciting outside rock star life, and as that longing became clear to us, we silently turned on him, missing the ease of how life worked without him in the mix. He was the circus dad, Disney dad, let's go to Pojo's dad. And all we really wanted was his attention, which he could not provide, so we embraced the unpredictable carnival ride that he was instead. An endless cycle of missing, longing, reunion, ecstasy, Disillusionment, departure, relief, and peace. Repeat, repeat, repeat. This whitewashed Norman Rockwell memory of the cabin in winter resides inside of a Viewmaster 
in my mind. The pondlet in front of the dock swaddled in bluish-white alabaster snow. The rounded, creamy seashell mounds of trees, fence posts. Dutch-white smoke snaking from the chimney. Vanilla candles and kerosene lamps casting an inviting warm light through the corn silk lace curtains. Layers of parchment, coconut, vanilla, pearl, magnolia, and meringue glowing and bouncing in the moonlight, seared and sealed in my memory and my heart. I stare until my eyes burn and lose focus. I blink. I click the Viewmaster and there's nothing but a blinding milk spill of emptiness on the next slide. Thank you for joining us today. We'll be back next Monday. Tune in.